0: Even people who know very little about the Bible know what we're talking about when we speak of the wisdom of Solomon. King Solomon is known as the wisest man in the history of the world, yet as we open our Bible today to explore his story in 1 Kings, we see not only his great wisdom, but also his great foolishness. So how was it, or what was it, that crowded out this king's love for God? We want to know, because we don't want anything to crowd out the place in our hearts that is reserved for God alone. For some of us, the past has some kind of special allure. We remember or we read about a time in history that seems idyllic to us and we wish we could have lived then. That's how it was for Gill, a disenchanted Hollywood screenwriter played by Owen Wilson in the film Midnight in Paris. Gill dreamt about escaping his unsatisfying present reality and to live back in Paris in the 1920s. And through the magic of the movies, he actually gets to experience it. He is picked up at the stroke of midnight by an antique car and taken back into time. And there he runs into Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald at an elegant soiree. And he hears Cole Porter crooning and gets writing advice from Hemingway and persuades Gertrude Stein to read the manuscript of his novel. And he also falls in love with Picasso's mistress Adriana, who has her own golden era fantasies. To Adriana, the best time to be alive would be the pre-World War I era when peace and prosperity in Paris allowed the arts to flourish. But when Adriana takes Gil back in time to the time she has idealized, he's not impressed because he sees the downside. I love this line. He said, these people don't have antibiotics. Because personally, I think he has a very good point. Well, similarly, the Israelites in Jesus' day had an era they looked back on a time they longed to return to, an era in their history when everything was as it should be. During the reign of King Solomon, everything God had promised to Abraham had come together in their experience. And they were a people as numerous as the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. They were at peace, living in the land that God had promised. And they were living under the wisest king ever known. They were experiencing the blessing of God in abundant crops and increasing wealth. Their very existence was a blessing to the world around them, as all the kings of the earth were in awe of the glory of their king and their kingdom. And best of all, God's promise to be their God and to dwell among them had become a reality. God descended in a cloud of glory to make his home in the magnificent temple at the center of their city. This, indeed, was a time worthy of looking back at and longing for. It was wonderful. But there was a problem. It didn't last. It all fell apart. The kingdom was torn in two. The wealth was carried away. The borders were invaded. The kings were disgraced. The temple was burned. The prophets spoke of a day in the future when the kingdom would be restored. And so God's people wished for the kingdom to be restored to what it once was in the days of Solomon. And they longed for a king to come who would be what Solomon once was. 900 years later, there came a carpenter's son from the town of Nazareth. He was wholly unimpressive, a man who didn't even own a home, let alone a palace. But when he spoke, he seemed wiser than their greatest wisdom teachers. And he spoke of the zenith of Israel's history. When the kingdom of Israel was at its peak in terms of wealth and power and territory and peace and security, the era that generations looked back at longingly. And then he said something shocking. He said, something greater than Solomon is here. A king greater and wiser than Solomon? A kingdom with more abundance and grandeur than that of Israel in Solomon's day? Those who heard him must have said to themselves, what is he talking about? Who is this king and where is this kingdom? That is the question we want to answer. But if we want to truly grasp this greater king and this greater kingdom first, we need to understand what was so great about Solomon and the kingdom of Israel in his day. And so we turn to 1 Kings. Where we learn about the wonders of Solomon's wisdom his wealth and his worship so first let's look at Solomon's wisdom first Kings begins with the death of King David in the time before the temple was built in Jerusalem Solomon has taken his place on the throne and when we come to chapter 3 we read that Solomon has gone to Gibeon where the tabernacle had come to rest to offer sacrifices and there God came down to open up the world to Solomon. Look with me in 1 Kings 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Well, this was much more than a generous invitation. It was also a significant test. As the newly enthroned king, perhaps Solomon might want to ask for victory over his enemies or success in his endeavors or money in his coffers, but that's not what Solomon asked for. O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon's response to God's offer revealed that Solomon saw himself as a partaker in the covenant promises of God, and it also revealed a childlike dependence upon God, a recognition that he did not know how to rule over God's people, but he wanted to do it well. Solomon asked specifically for an understanding mind to govern so that he could discern between good and evil. And immediately, here in chapter 3, we are told a story that is meant to show us that this prayer was answered. Two prostitutes, who both claimed to be the mother of the one living baby, stood before Solomon making their case. And Solomon demonstrated that God had indeed given him the divine ability to discern good and evil. Everyone must have been horrified when Solomon called for a sword to cut the living baby in two but in great wisdom Solomon had devised this test to reveal the secret motivations in the hearts of these two mothers and when he put the baby into the true mother's arms everyone was amazed so that we read in chapter 3 verse 28 that all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. If you have ever spent any time in a country in which corruption is woven into the fabric of all society and government so that citizens have no confidence that justice will be done, perhaps you have a special ability to appreciate what it means to have a government with the wisdom and the will to execute justice. Because remember that this was a land in which for centuries everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But now a king is on the throne who has the wisdom to discern between good and evil and the power to enact justice. This was a good time to be living in Israel under this wise king. And this is made clear when we get to chapter 4 of 1 Kings. Look in chapter 4, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Go down to verse 24 and 25. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace. On all sides around him and Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon the farms throughout Israel are yielding harvests and everyone is feasting their ancestors once groaned and cried out under cruel bondage in Egypt And now they're all enjoying all that God had promised to their father Abraham so long ago. There is every reason to be happy. God is proving true to all of his promises. They're all being fulfilled. Husbands and sons are no longer going out to war. Life is good. And their king? Well, he's amazing. Look here in chapter 4, verses 32 through 34. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Evidently, Solomon was a renaissance man long before the Renaissance. He was a philosopher, political scientist, engineer, and architect, as well as a songwriter. He would have set a new record for wins on Jeopardy and taken home the prize at Who Wants to be a Millionaire without using any lifelines. He would have gotten a Grammy for songwriter of the year. He would have had millions of people on his Proverbs Twitter feed. Everyone in the world wanted to hear what he had to say about anything and everything, including the Queen of Sheba. Look now in First Kings chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. So she has some hard questions. Questions no one else she knows has been able to answer. And I wonder what her questions were. Did she want to have her questions about? Planting and harvesting answers so that the farmers in her country could grow more hardy crops? Did she want to have her questions about running a kingdom answered so she could go back and make some changes in her government? Did she come with questions about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, wanting to know why he had brought his people out of slavery and into this land and blessed them so much? Did she ask Solomon? about the identity of the seed of the woman who would one day come and crush the head of the serpent, putting an end to the evil and suffering that makes life in a broken world so difficult? Did she ask him to explain the real meaning behind animal sacrifice? Well, whatever her questions were, Solomon answered them, leaving her breathless, Solomon was the wisest of wise men, so that the whole world came to learn from him. Yet we will see that Solomon also exhibited great foolishness. There was a limit to his wisdom, a failure in his wisdom. Someone with greater wisdom would be needed to sit on David's throne over God's people. Secondly, we see Solomon's wealth. Along with the unprecedented wisdom that made Solomon the wisest man in the world, God also gave Solomon unparalleled wealth, making him the richest man in the world. Now try to grasp the impression the writer of 1 Kings is trying to make on us, the readers, regarding Solomon's wealth. Look back in 1 Kings 10, beginning in verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers, and from the business of the merchants, and from all the kings of the west, and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. Now skip down to verse 21. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea, with the fleet of Hiram, once every three years, the fleet of ships at Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes and peacocks. Are you getting the picture from the repetition of the word "gold? The writers trying to impress upon us the incredible wealth of Solomon's kingdom. Today, his gold would be melted into bars and stacked in a vault, but in Solomon's day, gold was fashioned into ceremonial shields and evidently there were hundreds of them littered around Solomon's palace. But sadly, this abundance of gold in the kingdom of Israel didn't last for long past Solomon's life. We read later in First Kings, in chapter 14, verse 25, what happened when Solomon died. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. In just one generation, all the gold was gone. Clearly, what was needed was a wealth that is not vulnerable to poor investment or invading armies a wealth that is reserved and preserved where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So 1 Kings reveals to us the wisdom and the wealth of Solomon. It also shows us Solomon's heart for worship as evidenced by his desire and determination to build a magnificent temple. Ever since God had called Abraham and blessed him and promised to be his God, the history of God's people had been driving toward the day when God's people would live securely in God's place and where God would live among them and they would worship and serve him. Chapter 5 of 1 Kings details the procurement of building materials and labor for the building project. No effort or expense was spared. And then chapter 6 describes in intricate detail the design for the temple, which was meant to remind God's people of Eden. So when a priest came to the door of Solomon's temple, he saw carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and it was as if he were coming into the gates of paradise. No wonder the people of Israel in the generations to come longed for the temple and the kingdom to be restored to its former glory. It was the closest thing to paradise they had ever known. And when the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the temple, the temple became what Solomon had built it to be. Not just a beautiful building, but the center of his people's worship. The earthly dwelling place for the true and living God. Look with me in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The golden splendor of the temple was made glorious by the presence of God Himself. Yahweh, the Maker of heaven and earth, settled in Jerusalem where He could hear His people's prayers and capture His people's hearts. But His desires were not aimed only at the Israelites. The temple in Jerusalem was home base from which God would accomplish His intention to make the glory of his name known throughout the entire earth to all the peoples of the earth. When the Lord that Solomon loved moved into the house that Solomon built, Solomon broke out in one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible, asking God to listen to their prayers and to forgive. And then, once again, the Lord appeared to Solomon with a promise and a warning. Look in 1 Kings 9, verses 3 through 8. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart And uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. While the Lord's presence among His people was contingent on the nation of Israel's faithfulness under Moses, now that Israel had a king, the Lord's presence became contingent on the faithfulness of Israel's king. And sadly, Israel's kings were not faithful. The temple that Solomon built was glorious and beautiful. But the day came When it was made desolate and brought down to destruction, it was stripped of all its golden splendor and became an empty building where God could no longer dwell. Clearly, a greater, more glorious, more permanent temple was needed, a temple in which the glory of God would be pleased to dwell. So Solomon was great in his wisdom and wealth and his worship but all was not well behind the scenes of splendor the writer of first kings has stated the facts without comment along the way lest we think that there has been an effort to conceal the truth there have been hints all along in first kings that we could have picked up on first was the alliance Solomon made with Egypt by marrying the daughter of Pharaoh, even though God had commanded Israel's kings not to return to Egypt. Then there was the offering of sacrifices at the high places, even though God had commanded Israel to destroy the high places. And when we come here to chapter 11, the writer of 1 Kings comes out and summarizes what has been developing throughout Solomon's life in spite of God's gracious gift of wisdom. Look in 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So the same heart that was filled with wisdom and made discerning by God has turned away after other gods. At the beginning of Solomon's story in 1 Kings 3.3, 3, we read that Solomon loved the Lord. That is something Not said about any other person in the whole Bible. But here, at the end of his story, we read that Solomon loved many foreign women and that his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Clearly, a dramatic change has taken place in Solomon's affections. When we read that Solomon clung to these women in love, It's presenting to us the picture of a pathetic old man with a bad toupee and gold chains around his neck taking exotic young women on overnight jaunts on his yacht. These are royal daughters of the very nations that God had told Israel to drive out of the promised land. And yet Solomon is foolishly giving his heart to them and welcoming them into the palace. And even worse, He's worshiping their gods. Look in chapter 11, beginning in verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Solomon went after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Perhaps this doesn't shock us because. We don't really understand what it meant for him to go after these gods. We don't have any mental pictures. Well, Ashtoreth was the Canaanite goddess of sensual love and fertility. To go after this god meant that Solomon likely went to the high places and had sexual relations out in the open with temple prostitutes. Milcom, the god of the Ammonites was worshiped through child sacrifice. So we might assume that perhaps Solomon lowered himself to throwing one of his children into the fire to appease this false god out of desperation to please some Ammonite wife. Solomon put a shrine for Moloch right on the Mount of Olives in clear view from the temple. When he worshiped, At this temple, it was like saying in your face to the God who had been so very generous and gracious to him. Surely, if we had lived in Solomon's day, if we had witnessed one of his wise rulings or taken a tour of his house or gardens or listened to one of his lectures, we would have walked away quite sure that he would be the last person in the world to fall into serious sin. I mean, he looked so good. He made God look so good. He brought blessing to so many. He was able to explain things no one else could. He would have been the go-to guy for advice on how to deal with our most perplexing situations. But then we discover that something has been going on in his life that causes us to question our easy admiration for Him, for all the peace and security and abundance that He had brought to His people, we see that He also brought disaster upon them. How can this be? How could someone given so much wisdom succumb to such foolishness? Honestly, This is something I have struggled with in regard to Solomon's story. Here is this man to whom God has given extraordinary wisdom, wisdom for living in the world God has made under his rule. And yet he seems so foolish. It's hard for me to understand. I was talking about this with my husband, David, and I said, well, I guess he just made a lot of little compromises along the way that turned his heart away from God. And David said, but they weren't little compromises. They were enormous. And I realized, yes, they were. And perhaps that reveals the real issue. Surely they seemed small to him at the time. Maybe he justified taking so many foreign wives as being strategic to ensuring the security of the kingdom. Maybe he justified building altars for the false gods of these wives under the guise of being a good husband. Maybe he justified procuring many horses and chariots, thinking that when Moses gave instructions for Israel's kings not to do so, he just didn't anticipate the current culture. Perhaps he intended to use the platform his fame provided for him to be salt and light in the world only to end up being corrupted by the world. Solomon loved the Lord. But he also had some other loves in his life, loves that had the power to crowd out the place in his heart that should have been reserved for God alone. And as I say it, I realize that it isn't really so hard to understand because I have other loves in my life that threaten to crowd out the place in my heart that should be reserved for God alone. Solomon was a success at international trade. He was a success at completing huge building projects. He had power over his people, a royal navy, an enormous treasury, an impressive reputation. But somewhere along the way, he became a failure in what matters most, his exclusive love relationship with the living God. Perhaps this is why the writer of Hebrews admonishes us, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The kingdom in the days of Solomon was glorious, but it didn't last because the heart of the king did not stay true. His heart was divided. And eventually, so was the kingdom. Never again was the kingdom in Israel as glorious as it was under Solomon. Though the Israelites longed for it to be restored, they believed that when Messiah came, he would restore the kingdom of Israel to the glory it once had in the days of Solomon. And then Jesus showed up saying something greater than Solomon is here. Just how was Jesus and the kingdom he brings greater? While Solomon was the wisest man in the world in his time, in Jesus are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. We think it's just too simplistic to say that Jesus is the answer to our deep, philosophical questions and complex relational issues, but the Bible tells us that he has become to us wisdom from God. We need the wisdom that is Christ to supplant the wisdom of the world that has permeated our perspectives. While Solomon loved the Lord, Jesus is the only person who has ever loved the Lord with all of his heart, mind, and strength without fail. The reality is that you and I cannot be totally consecrated or wholeheartedly devoted to God on our own. But Jesus has invited us to be joined to him so that through him, we who have been unfaithful can be made perfectly And enduringly faithful while Solomon accumulated riches Jesus became poor for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich we have been made rich in salvation benefits because Jesus impoverished himself on the cross. While Solomon exercised justice, Jesus endured injustice. There, on the cross between two thieves, one of them recognized this, saying, We're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong he recognized that Jesus was indeed a greater king over a greater kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. While Solomon drafted a great labor force to accomplish all of his building projects, King Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, saying, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. While Solomon ushered in an era of peace for Israel with her enemies, Jesus makes it possible for enemies of God to have peace with God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. While Solomon built a temple that was eventually torn down, Jesus is the temple who was raised up. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he said, which is just what he did when he rose from the grave. And while Solomon reigned over the entire territory of Israel, Jesus reigns over the entire universe. He told the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And while Solomon had many wives, Jesus has only one bride. He loves her and gave himself up for her. He has no intention of accommodating her worship of other gods, but has cleansed her so that she might be holy and without blemish. The people of God looked back at the era of Israel under Solomon and longed for things to be the way they once were. And yet when we read the story of Solomon, we're not meant to long for what was. Instead, we're meant to take it in as a picture of what will be. Something greater came when Jesus became flesh and dwelled among us. But there is something even greater yet to come. We're getting tastes and glimpses of it now as citizens of heaven. And the day will come when this kingdom will become the reality that we will live in forever. The day will come when we will stand before our greater king, And we will say to him the words spoken to King Solomon by the Queen of Sheba. We will say to King Jesus, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness.